Romans 5, verse 12 through 21 is going to be our text, and we're looking at grace alone tonight as our next, uh, our next uh, subject in our study of the solas. We're looking at these as pillars of a biblical church, and uh, truly I believe these are pillars of a biblical church because they are essentially what the gospel is, uh, and we know that scripture alone extends even beyond that to everything else that we do in practice. Uh, but we're going to look at Romans 5 and verse uh, 12 through 21. And uh, some of our content will be somewhat uh, fresh to us. We just came up to Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 2 is certainly heavy on uh, the grace of God. And uh, so uh, we're going to look at this text, and I pray it be a blessing to us tonight. Romans 5 and verse 12, we'll come down through verse 21. Notice that Paul's writing to the church there in Rome, and he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the the grace of God and the free gift up by the grace of God of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by, the, by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's certainly a a text that could be spoken on and expounded for a long time, but I want to focus this evening on uh, the reality of grace. Now, one of the most uh, beloved and well known hymns sung by the church is what? Amazing Grace, right? Written by John Newton. The song itself, having its words rooted in scriptures, it really does express why grace is so amazing. It's one, why it's one of the most beloved songs that we sing. But do we ever consider why grace is so amazing? Do we consider that reality? Uh, are we still amazed at the grace of God? This was a challenging question to my own self uh, because we often need a refresher on why it is that grace is what it is. Why is it amazing? Why is it uh, so rich and that we ought not to get bored with it? And I believe that one of the major detriments to the church today is that grace does not appear to be amazing uh, to many professing Christians. It seems that grace has become boring to many when in fact grace is amazing beyond what words really can describe to us. Now, why is that? I believe that many do not truly know what grace is or have never really experienced the grace of God. And it could also be that many today have become bored with grace and they're just more intrigued with lesser aspects of church ministry or 
pragmatic things that go on within the church. I believe that's a problem in itself. But what we find is that grace at its core is is a foundation to our salvation and also to our church. And so throughout this text before us, we see Paul recalling the sinful condition of man, how we got that sinful condition and what that brought to pass upon us. But I also note throughout this passage that word grace used uh, frequently. You'll find Paul mentions grace five times in this passage because it's grace that makes the change. It's grace that uh, brings about the change in our condition and in our future. We see it here in verse 15, verse 17, verse 20, and in verse 21. And so we think about grace for a moment, and I've shared this with you in the, in the past by way of definition. What is grace? Grace refers to a beneficent disposition towards someone. It is favor or being gracious and helpful. And so when we think about grace in the realm of God's salvation and His working in us, Grace is God's favorable disposition towards a person. It means that that recipient of grace has received God's undeserved and unmerited or unearned favor. Now, that brings us to what this third sola is all about. Sola gratia means grace alone. That's Latin for grace alone. And so when the Reformers spoke of grace alone, they were proclaiming that sinners had no claim upon God, that God owed them nothing. God owed them nothing and that they could do nothing to merit or work for or contribute to their salvation. If anyone is to be saved, it is because God has saved them by His grace alone and not because of their works or religious practices or anything that they could do. Now, they also understood this in the realm of where they had previously been. Remember that the Reformation took place as a means of really God bringing people out of the corruption of the Catholic Church, seeing what the gospel actually is. It is a message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That's the solas in a summary. And so what they saw was the corruption that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, had within it. Now, by all means, Roman Catholicism and a large portion of Christianity today, they still speak of grace, don't they? Grace is in their language, but they do not truly understand grace, and it's evident in how they practice and what they do and in what they require. An example of this is seen in the Council of Trent in the 1540s, and I'll quote this. I have reference for it. Uh, When it was expressed by them, If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary into salvation, or that without them, or without the desire thereof, men obtain from God through faith alone the grace of justification, let him be anathema, or let him be cursed. And so right in that statement, they proclaim that if you discount the sacraments, or if you discount other things in regards to us being justified before God, if you think it's only through faith alone well, let you be anathema. So they, they hold on to the religion and works and, and other things added to grace. But beyond just the plain corruption of Catholicism, that's an easy one for us to spot, there is a present lack of understanding of grace, even in churches that would not be considered uh, Roman Catholic. And most of these churches will not deny the reality of grace being involved in salvation, but they do deny it in how they practice and what they preach in regards to salvation. 
there's often a grace plus other things. Grace plus this, or grace plus that. Well, we're saved by grace, but you still need to be a member of this church. Or you're saved by grace, but you still need to be baptized and whatnot. So with this, they show a lack of understanding in grace and its importance. And what we must understand if we are to see how amazing this grace truly is and why grace alone is a foundational pillar of the church, we have to look at what the Bible teaches about our sin, about salvation, about what God has done for us. So notice with me number one in our notes tonight, and this, a lot of this will be fundamental for us. We're having just come through Ephesians, we're familiar with it, but we'll get a little refresher to this. Notice that grace alone seeks sinners in their depravity. This is what makes grace grace. This is why it is amazing. If In order to truly understand grace, you first have to truly understand man and his own nature. If you don't understand that, you're not going to see the reality of grace. Because as long as you think man is somewhat okay, somewhat uh, good, you do not see why grace is entirely necessary. So, so notice with me the first aspect here. The sinfulness of sin must be understood if we're to understand what grace is. The sinfulness of sin. And I believe that this really is a core problem of today. There is a lack of understanding of grace because there's firstly a lack of understanding of sin. The very nature of man and his, and his doings. Now that little word sin, it's, it's used so loosely and flippantly. It's not used enough and as it should be. But if we're truly to view grace for what it is... Uh, to be amazing, we have to see what sin is and why it's so horrific. Now, Paul brings out of our text, and I want us to look at our text, both the origin and the transmission of sin in humanity. You come back to verse 12, and notice what he says. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now, we're familiar with the beginnings, right? With Genesis. Now that Adam and Eve, they were the first created humans, Adam being the federal head over humanity. And so this one man he's talking about is Adam. No one else. It's him. It's Adam. Now, I think about Adam, and I'm, I'm kind of fascinated just to think about what it must have been to be him in his time. He's the first man ever created, made of the dust of the earth, and God breathes into him the breath of life and becomes a living soul. Here is Adam in a state of innocence, in a world that literally is paradise. There is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as death. There's no corruption. There's, no, uh, there, there's nothing of what we see in our world. Adam knew a world of absolutely no evil and no death. But we know that Adam was not made with the impossibility of sinning, that he was in a state of innocence and not what we say glorified state or perfection. But notice what happens. With his disobedience to God... The judgment of God came upon man through him. Notice in verse 12, it says, And sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And death through sin. Now, to be in a world where death was non-existent, and then suddenly death enters was a major transition. Now, consider this reality. Just put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes for a moment. They commit sin. They realize they're naked, and so they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. We know that that wasn't good enough, right? So what does God do for them? He instead takes an animal and makes coats of skins for them. But can you imagine for a moment Adam and Eve in that scenario? They're visually seeing what death is for the very first time. That animal that had life in it is killed by God. 
so that the skins of that animal could cover them. That animal that once had life no longer has life. It's just gone. It's dead. Death has entered into the world. And not only that, they would experience it not only of themselves after they lived hundreds of years, but I don't know how long this time frame is. They have kids. And one of their kids, Cain, ends up murdering, killing his brother Abel. They experience death by way of their own child dying. And so how detrimental the result of sin is on the human race. Now, this sin and death didn't only apply to Adam and Eve and their, their first family, but as the federal head of all humanity, sin and death came upon every person. What's Paul say in verse 12? He says, so death spread to how many men? All men. All men. Why? Because all sin. So, so the transmission of sin came upon us, and with that also came the transmission of death. And we come on down through this passage, we see all men sin and all men die. Paul describes this further in verse 13 through 14, where he says, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, and that death reigned from Adam to Moses. He's pointing out that even before Sinai, Sin was here, and death was here, and it reigned supreme throughout humanity. He's connecting the timing of the law in this passage to, to show that even before the law came or, and was given to humanity, that sin abounded and so did death. He goes on to say that sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, that does not mean that they were not sinners or they weren't guilty. Since people still die, that shows they were guilty, and the consequence of Adam's sin was on them. But we also recognize that uh, they had transgressed a universal moral law that was in their own conscience. See, this is another aspect, is that in the conscience of mankind is the law of God. Man by his own nature, as far as the conscience he's given him, we know it's not right to murder and to steal and to do certain things. It's, it, it, it's, that's, that's a basic principle of God's law written in the conscience of man. Now, Paul, Paul brought that out in Romans two fourteen to 15. Listen to what he says. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. So you notice that the law of God is ingrained in humanity to some degree. And so not only did, did man sin against law in his conscience, but you come down to verse 20, you notice that the law was given, and what is, what, as the law is given, what did that do with man and sin? Well, we find the law came to increase the trespass. So when the law comes, it just increases man's sin and, in, and gives him even greater guilt. Why is that? Well, not only does man sin against the law by his conscience, now he is willfully and rebelliously sinning against the plain commandment God has given, right? Just as Adam did. Adam had a plain commandment from God, do not eat of this fruit, right? It wasn't just in his conscience, it was something God verbally said to him. But then we see God's law come and we find that man has, give, man has been given God's law and he plainly and willfully rejects and transgresses God's law. It's plain before men. You know, most men know at least a few of the Ten Commandments and yet what do they do? They willfully and continually, habitually transgress the law of God. That is their nature to do so. And what do we find as a result of this? All through this passage, verse 17 and 18, I'm pointing out Adam's side here because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. One trespass led to the condemnation of all men. 
By one man's disobedience, we've all been made sinners throughout this whole passage. Now, though we see this plainly in the Scriptures, how mankind disregards uh, God's law, we find how exceedingly sinful we truly are. I want to I go backwards in the, in the Bible to Psalm 51 for a moment, just to look at, look at some words from David. Now, David, we know, was a, of a believer. He was a Christian man. But he gives great insight into the sinfulness of man by way of his own confession of his sin. Psalm 51, verse 1 through 5. We know that this com- confession, it comes after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. Uh, David had great sin here. And we recall how Nathan the prophet came and gave him a little story about uh, this guy who had mistreated another guy and stole his sheep. And, and we remember how David said, well, this guy deserves to be put to death. And Nathan points the finger at David and says, you're the guy. You're the man. You're the one who's guilty. And so this is David's confession. He says in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I just want to point out for a moment a few different words that David uses here. You notice in verse 1 he says, blot out my transgression. What is a transgression? Well, a transgression plainly refers to a a crime in general, all right? But it essentially refers to crossing a forbidden boundary. So so when, when, when John writes his letter in the New Testament, he says that sin is transgression of the law. It's crossing a boundary. It's breaking a commandment. Uh, many, we, we may have read of Julius Caesar, who was a, a general who, commanded, uh, who was commanded to remain in the north uh, above the river Rubicon. I don't know if you've read about this or not. It's in history. But as long as he did so, he would be on peace for, peaceful terms with the Roman Senate. Don't cross this bridge. He was to remain up there, right? But once he crossed the river Rubicon, what happened? Well, the Senate had forbidden him to do so. And so as soon as he crossed that, he was at war with the Roman Senate. And so Caesar crossed that river, and civil war erupted. And I read this by way of illustration, that essentially this is what we've done with God. By our own transgressions, we've crossed his forbidden boundary. We have crossed his forbidden boundary, and by with our transgressions, what has that done with us? That's put us at war with him. We are at war with God. That that applies to the whole of humanity. Humanity in its natural state is at war with God. Whether he recognizes it, acknowledges it or not, he is at war with God by his life. Listen to what Romans 8, 7 says. The mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, man doesn't like to think of himself in this light, that well, I'm not hostile to God. By the way, he lives and thinks he is. He is by his own nature. I like what Alexander McLaren says, and I quote him. He says, It is not merely then that we go against some abstract propriety 
or break some impersonal law of nature when we do wrong, but that we rebel against a rightly sovereign. That's essentially what all transgression is. It is rebellion against the sovereign Holy One who gave us life. And David is using that word transgression in that form. We've crossed a boundary. That's what he did in his own sin. Now David next uses the word iniquity in verse 2. Notice what he says. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This word iniquity uh, refers to a misdeed or sin. All of these are sin in nature. But But it refers to our sinful nature or perversion and corruption in us. This is actually the same word he uses in verse 5. And he says, he was brought forth in iniquity. This is how he came out into the world, because he was conceived in sin. And so he's talking about his very nature, his very nature. And then he uses the word sin in verse 2. He says, and cleanse me from my sin. Now, this is the most plain word we use in referring to this concept. It refers to falling short, missing the mark, Right? Paul reiterates this in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark of God's perfection, of His standard, of what He expects. Humanity has missed the high mark of God's standard, which is sinlessness. So when you look at this as a whole, David crossed a forbidden boundary by his own perverse nature and fell short of God's perfect standard in his sinfulness. And that's not only David's problem, that's humanity's problem. By our own nature and works, we are exceedingly sinful beyond what we can even fathom. We breathe sin. That's what we do. We live in sin. And many professing Christians today damage the message of grace by supposing that humans are basically good with some disposition towards evil. Friend, it is not that way. We are not basically good with some disposition towards evil. We are exceedingly sinful. Man has no goodness in him before God and is in desperate need of grace, which leads to this second aspect. Not only do we see the first aspect here, that, um, that the sinfulness of sin must be understood. We also see that the bondage of sin needs to be understood, if we're to understand grace. The bondage of sin. It's unmistakably evident from our text that sin has entered the world. It's affected all mankind. But how has it affected mankind? Not only did it bring death, but it has also affected the very nature of who we are. Our bodies are affected by sin. That's the reason. We have health issues and, uh, you know, things go bad in our body. Well, that's the reason is sin. Our mind is affected by sin. Our will is affected by sin. This effect has placed us into a bondage that we can't escape. And you read Romans 3 and verse 10 through 12 there in your notes. Paul, in that discourse on our nature, he says, that is, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Now, Paul's made plain that Jew and Gentile, all humanity, they're all under sin. And here's how he describes them. He describes them in this way. There is none righteous. No one is righteous, not even one. Now, the world... And even much of the umbrella of Christianity think that man has some righteousness or goodness. Now, this thinking is especially prevalent among those in religious activity. Surely, if there's anything good in the world that I could do, it would be something religious, something having to do with the church, something in the name of Jesus, right? The mind of man naturally wants to think that he is better than he actually is. 
we all wrestle with that to some degree, right? We all want to think we're better off than we actually are. But, but when we look at this, all the vast religious activity that we see in our world, it often blinds people from seeing the true state of who they are in their own nature. Now, Jesus spoke to the religious of his day. These were the religious elite. If you're going to look for someone religious, he was one of these guys. Matthew 23, 27, he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. I mean, you talk about a vivid description, right? You go to Israel, and I've mentioned this before, there on the Mount of Olives, you're going to see a, a whole portion of that mountain filled with these white boxes that are above ground. What are those? Those are tombs. Those are those whited sepulchers that, David, that Jesus is talking about, that you look pretty on the outside, but what's inside of those? Dead men's bones. Why? Because there's none righteous. None righteous. The outward's not what makes us righteous. Notice also, Paul says, that there's no one who understands now, what does Paul mean by that when he says no one understands? Well, lost sinful men understand many things. But he's specifically talking about spiritual perception. Spiritual perception, not a lack of human knowledge. There are a lot of smart and intelligent people in the world, humanly speaking. But they are spiritually destitute in their understanding. And one of the things in, in Paul's day is, was that, that the Greeks, that's what they prided in, right? They prided in wisdom and knowledge and intellect. Uh, they had philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. You've probably heard those names in secular, secular culture. But Paul makes clear to them the difference between human knowledge and intellect and spiritual understanding. Now, if you look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment, 1 Corinthians 1, and I want to point this text out to you. I think this just makes it ever plain for what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 through 21 Notice what Paul says here to the Corinthians. They were in Corinth. They were filled with Greeks. They were filled with people who thought they were knowledgeable and had great, great wisdom. And here's what he says. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And you can keep on reading how the Jews demand a sign, the Greeks, uh, the, the Greeks uh, are looking for uh, wisdom, and uh, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to them. It's foolishness. They don't understand it. He says later in this, this same book, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So you understand that in a worldly sense, they lack understanding by their sinful nature. Now, a scholar can understand Christian theology as well as you can understand any other branch of knowledge. But intellectual knowledge is not the same as spiritual understanding of the gospel. And so thus Paul says, no one who understands. Notice also he says, no one seeks God. Now, given that man's moral and intellectual state are bound in sin, so also is his will. You see, sin constrains the will of man, making his desires 
his desires that which pleases and satisfies his sinful flesh. This was a chief issue in several battles throughout church history is the will of man. You find this clash between Augustine and Pelagius, between Martin Luther and Erasmus, between Jacob Arminius and, and followers of John Calvin. Is the will of man free and able to do what is right before God? See, that's, that's one of the major, major hindrances. Well, man has free will. Does he? Well, his will is free in the sense that he can follow his own desires, but he is not free in the sense he has the power to change those desires from his sinful nature. And so this is exactly the dilemma that, that we're in concerning the mind, man's natural desires. They are not free. They're bound to the nature in which he lives, which is a sinful nature. And what exactly is it that sinners do in their nature? Well, we already discussed this at length in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, on the depravity of man. And I'll just read it just to refresh you. What is it that sinners do by their nature? Look at this. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, of, by, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is why when the gospel is presented to sinners, what's their natural reaction to it? They turn away. They'd rather just live their sinful life without any intervention of God. They don't have the ability to do what God requires. Now, here's where grace comes in. I know we, we look at what sin is, like the sinfulness of man and, and the bondage of man in his sin. Despite this abominable condition that mankind is in, Having this exceedingly sinful nature and hopeless bondage, God has not left all sinners just to stay in that condition. He has chosen to seek out and save an innumerable multitude. And why and how has He done this? By grace alone. By grace. Not because of merit on my part, but only because of grace that is in Himself. If God did not have grace in Himself we wouldn't be having this conversation today at all. You see, grace moves God's hand to reach sinners. It is not the sinner who reaches their hand towards God, but God who reaches his hand towards us in a hopeless and depraved condition. You see, when you understand the guilt of sin and who we are and what God has done, that's what magnifies the grace of God. To truly understand what grace is, you have to know who we are. And that is why so many do not understand what grace is. They don't know who they are. They don't know who they are without the grace of God in their sin. So we see that grace alone, grace alone seeks sinners in their depravity. But also, number two tonight, grace alone saves sinners from damnation, from their judgment, from what they deserve. Now, notice with the first aspect here, is that judgment of God upon the sinner is deserved. They're worthy of it. All sinners are worthy of the judgment of God. Now, Adam and Eve, we see, brought in physical death, but it wasn't just physical death as we've talked about. It brought in spiritual death, as Ephesians 2 tells us, and also eternal death, which is eternal judgment of God upon sinners. Now, it's often recognized that sin is a problem. Many people recognize, oh, yeah, sin exists. Oh, yeah, sin, it's a problem. But when you get to the judgment of God, that is where they don't 
tend to view sin for what it really is. They want to downplay sin because when you get to the judgment of God, they have to downplay the judgment in some fashion. When it comes to talking about what comes after death, majority of people are going to think they're going to heaven. Isn't that true? Nearly everybody I talk to is on their way to heaven. But when you talk to them about sin and about what it truly means to be saved, they're not on their way to heaven. They need to see and realize that, that, that there is a judgment upon them, the wrath of God, and that if they, are, they die in their sin, they're not going to heaven. There's not any preacher good enough to preach anybody into heaven at their funeral. I know everybody would love that, but you can't do it. The moment a person dies in their sins, having, no, having not uh, been forgiven by the blood of Jesus alone, they will enter into judgment. Now, you, you, Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Both death and judgment are in the future of every person. And the reality is most people think God surely wouldn't execute eternal judgment upon people. I mean, God's loving, he's merciful, he's gracious. Surely he wouldn't do such a thing. But the scripture tells us plainly that there is a future day of judgment to come and God must judge people in his righteousness because he's holy. He cannot contradict his own nature. He cannot, he cannot contradict his holiness by way of his love. He is in perfect balance of everything. He is the perfect existence of all of them. Acts, Acts 17, 30 and 31, we read, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by the raising of him from the dead. You notice what, what Paul's saying here? He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's going to judge us based on what's absolutely right, what we deserve. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this and says, If this is a moral universe, that is, if it is created and ruled by a moral God, then there must be a reckoning hereafter in which the tables are balanced out. The good must prosper and the evil must be punished. Now, is this a moral universe? Yes. It's governed by a moral God, a holy God. And the problem is, as we've just discovered, there isn't any good. Nobody's good. All of us are evil. And what does that mean? Judgment and punishment are coming upon the sinner. It's on its way. And what happens with this judgment? Well, God judges every individual based on their life in this world. Essentially, what you find is that we're judged based on our works. 2 Corinthians 5.10 we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what he's due for what he has done in the body, whether it's good or evil. So when this judgment day comes, there is no suitable excuses before God. There is none. All sin will receive its just punishment down to every idle word. I mean, that's hard to fathom. Jesus said every idle word will give account for. Now, the judgment is plain before us in the Scriptures, but the outcome of what the sinner truly deserves is unavoidable. Look with me, if you would, to Revelation for a moment. Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And notice, notice here what John the Apostle writes in the revelation Jesus gave him. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, 
From his presence, the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, reading that passage, that ought to make every, every sinner tremble. But they won't. Why? Because their sinful nature discounts and disdains the word of the living God. They treasure up wrath for the day of wrath. They think little of God in their sin. And when the truth of God's judgment, like what we read here, comes to mind, their thought is that that's too severe, that's unfair, that just can't be true. According to their standard, right? Is it too severe? Is it unfair? Well, firstly, consider this. We are not the infinitely holy God and do not have the right to say what is eternally right. Secondly, yes, when we consider who God is and who we are, it is absolutely fair and just. The sin of man is so great because the holiness of God is so great. Men fail to see their sinfulness and the judgment they deserve because they fail to see God's holiness. You remember Isaiah when he saw the Lord on his holy throne and his glory. And the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. What was Isaiah's response? Isaiah 6, 5, he said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people in clean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He had a clear, unaltered vision of who God was. And seeing who God was made him see who he was. You see, men deserve eternal judgment and will rightfully get it. How then is it that any man escapes this judgment? Is it religion? Is it the church? Is it changing our ways? The answer comes down to one thing. The grace of Almighty God. The grace of God in His act of satisfying the punishment that we deserve for sin. And that brings me to number two, or letter B here in this heading. Judgment, upon, judgment of God upon the Savior is undeserved. We see judgment upon the sinner is deserved, but this brings us to judgment that was given to the Savior is undeserved. And we already covered this in depth last week when we looked at Christ alone, right? Solus Christus, that pillar, that doctrine. But we look at this again just briefly. Since the sinner is deserving of wrath and God's wrath must be satisfied, how is it that this wrath is satisfied and the sinner is released from that judgment? How can grace seek the sinner and save him? The answer is found in the redemptive work of Christ alone. The cross upon which Jesus died and what he did there, that is the pinnacle of our salvation. That is the pinnacle. We read what Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses, notice this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to his cross. So you see, when Jesus is on the cross and he, he cries out to Telestai, it is finished, 
He's making a pronouncement that this legal transaction, he's accomplished it. He took all of that guilt and shame and punishment I deserve on his own body, on his own self when he died there on the cross. And that, friend, is chiefly the work of God's grace towards sinners. Christ alone. Because his death was no ordinary death. It was supernatural and spiritual in its transaction. It is a death in which the justice of the holy judge of the earth is satisfied with the blood of the holy God-man, Christ Jesus, who died in the place of sinners. And so by the cross of Christ, sinners are justified and made righteous. So when we're judged on the works, the judgment day comes, we're judged by the works, we've done good and evil, we claim one work, and that's the work of Jesus. Because I have no work of my own that can save me. Romans 5, we'll look at our text again briefly and just look at the opposite side. We looked at Adam's side, but you look briefly through our text in Romans 5. Notice verse 15, the latter half of these verses. He says, the free gift by the grace, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What is that? Grace, grace here. Verse 16, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You come on down through this passage and you find that we're justified by grace. Verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, this is the contrast. It goes back and forth. Adam gave us this, but Jesus gives us this. And at the center of this is grace, grace, grace. And ultimately, we learn in verse 20, and I love this. Where sin increased, what happened? Grace abounded all the more. <laughs> you see the depth of the grace of God here for a moment? Our sin is exceedingly great beyond what we can fathom, and yet the grace of God towards believers exceeds that sin. Friend, if my sin were greater than God's grace, I'd be in hell today. God's grace is greater than my sin, far greater. It was grace that led Jesus to the cross to satisfy our sentence of death before God. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We're not rich materially, that's not what he's talking about, he's talking about spiritually and eternally. We read of that in Ephesians 2, 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace that he'll express towards us. But friend, when you truly understand grace, you cannot help but describe it as amazing. Grace should not be something that we grow tired of hearing about, but something that we rejoice in always. Because God, by his grace alone, seeks sinners in their depravity and saves them from that damnation all through the work of Christ. All through the work of Christ. This is what grace has done for us. But notice with number three, and I'll try to be quick. I have a habit of putting too much in my notes, and it makes, it makes it hard to get through it all. So bear with me. Grace alone sovereignly delivers sinners. Sovereignly delivers sinners. And this is where we see how specific in nature God's grace is to us. Notice letter A, God by his grace has chosen and called sinners. God by his grace has chosen and called sinners. And this is the reality in scripture and history. 
Not every person in this world receives this grace that saves. They just don't. Though the gospel is preached to many, not all believe it. Though the gospel is commissioned to the world, not all hear it. And here's the reality. Many professing Christians today believe that God owes every person who ever lives a chance to be saved. And that if one is saved, then it's because of their own good decision to receive Jesus by way of some sinner's prayer or religious exercise. That's typically what you find. And this is one reason that the doctrine of election is so vehemently opposed by many. Many believe that, well, God owes everybody a chance, right? But here's the truth. God doesn't owe anybody a chance. He owes nobody anything. That idea assumes that God owes us something, and God does not owe anyone anything. If God were to only do what is fair and just, understand that there is no salvation for anybody. Many people don't have a clue what they're actually saying. Well, that's just not fair. If you want fairness, everyone dies in their sin. So why is it that salvation comes to anybody? The answer is grace. It's grace. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9, of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began or before the world. And so this is a marvelous thing. In God's grace, he chose a multitude of people beyond number to save one time in history. And that is the doctrine of election. God sovereignly of his own purpose and will, which exceeds the mind of our humanity, chose whom he would save by his grace. Paul spells that out in Ephesians as we studied not long ago. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Paul says, even as he chose us, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. You say, well, why has God chosen to act in this way? That's a question you and I will never answer. But it's also a truth that I can't deny. When we consider the very nature of what grace is, it does not apply to every person who ever lives because grace is the undeserved and unearned favor of God. Not every person who ever lives receives that. If it was the case that way, every person would be saved. You wouldn't have anybody die in their sin. But here's what we understand. It is not for us to consider who God has chosen and who God has not. That's not our business. It's not possible to know that. What we must consider is, one, do we believe the gospel? Two, are we preaching the gospel to every person? And leave the saving work to God. You see, this grace is known and experienced by the believer when the Holy Spirit calls the sinner to salvation through the gospel. Now, while there is a general call to everybody, repent and believe, the natural disposition of man is what? No, I'm not going to do that. He doesn't want to. But we find God's grace extends an inward call that affects our will, opening our heart, enabling us to believe when we did not want to. He changes who we were. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him at the last day. 
Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Real briefly for a moment. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. He says to these Christians, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, chose you as the first fruit to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I understand not all Christians see it this way, and that's okay. I believe God saves sinners in spite of themselves. So, we understand that. But you notice that Scripture plainly says God chose them and called them to Himself. And when I finally came to understand this, I was amazed at how deep the grace of God actually goes. From beginning to end, it's all of His grace. So that brings this last aspect here, that God, by His grace, He saves and seals sinners. As a result of the Father's gracious election and the Son's gracious redemption, God completely saves and seals sinners through the Spirit's gracious regeneration. Now Paul went on to write about that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him and were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Why did the Ephesians believe? Because of what he just said. They weren't somehow better or somehow escaped their sin nature. It was because God at first had done the first work in them. From eternity past on through history and into their hearts. Acts 13.48 we read that when the Gentiles heard the word of the Lord. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see God's grace alone affects the sinful nature through regeneration, making them willing and able to repent and believe. And so, Christian, here's what we must understand today, why this is so important. This is all the work of God's grace. This is what the Reformers came to understand, that their salvation from beginning to end was holy of God and nothing of them, nothing of Rome, nothing of the Pope, nothing of the church. But this is what Christians throughout history before the Reformation also believed, that every true believer is saved by grace alone. And once we're saved by grace, you can't escape that grace. You're always in it. You're secure forever. Jonathan Edwards said, it is of God's power that we're preserved in the state of grace. So to dampen the grace of God damages the gospel message and dampens the glory of God. Grace is what we stand on. Grace alone saves us and sustains us. It is not religion. It is not the church. It is not anything in and of ourselves. It is grace alone from beginning to And I pray that we would rejoice in that and see that. I know we've seen it recently, but it's good to see it afresh and understand that this truly is a pillar, a pillar of the Lord's church and of the gospel that we believe tonight.